You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to week three of our parables class. Uh, We are on, like I said, our third week. Last week we studied our first parable together. David led us through the parable of the prodigal son. Um, Just a few things for tonight. One, uh, there is coffee and snacks. So anytime if you need to get up and get snacks or something to drink, feel free to do that. Um, Also, we are going to be working off of a handout. Does everyone have access to one of these? Does anyone need an extra sheet? Yeah? Okay, you got it. Sweet. All right, so tonight we are going to be studying the parable of the tenants, which is found in Matthew chapter 21. Um, And as always, we want to start our study off uh, with prayer. So if you would just join me in prayer as we start. Lord, we thank you so much for the chance that we have to gather together as brothers and sisters and study your words, study the words of Jesus. I pray that as we dive into this text tonight, that you would bring fresh revelation, that you would speak to us through these words, these ancient words from thousands of years ago that still hold so much power to transform our lives, Lord. I just pray that you would um, be present with us and that you would um, help us to see you more clearly this evening. Pray this in your name, amen. All right, show of hands, who here uh, is into poetry? Do we have any poetry fans, Audrey? (laughs) One poetry fan, one and a half, two and a half. Um, Well, you three, you three are in luck because we are actually going to be starting tonight with a poem, not just a poem, but a love poem from the Old Testament. Um, And this poem is going to be very important in our understanding of the parable of Jesus. And so just trust me, this uh, passage from Isaiah is going to pay off later tonight. Uh, This poem comes from Isaiah chapter 5, and it's been nicknamed the Song of the Vineyard. And something interesting about this poem is that the opening line would have immediately clued in the listeners that they were about to hear a love song. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. However, if we were to read this poem in Hebrew, the rhythm and the meter of this poem would actually be the rhythm and meter of a song of mourning a lament, a song of grief. And this is meant to sort of put the reader off of, off uh, like kilter. Am I listening to a love song or am I listening to a song of mourning? And so it's meant to sort of clash. Um, if you're into music, you could think of this as being written in the minor key. So let's keep reading. Uh, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. 
He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Now listen to the end of this song because here the poet is gonna explain the meaning. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. And now he's gonna tell you what the fruit represents that he was looking for. It says, and he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So the fruit that the Lord is expecting to find is justice and righteousness, and yet all he finds is bloodshed and distress. Now I included for you guys, because I think this is neat, um, in the yellow, that's a transliteration of the Hebrew, and there's actually a play on words that's going on in this poem. So if you were to read this in Hebrew, it would read that he looked for mishpat, or justice, but he saw only mispach, which is bloodshed. He looked for tzedakah, but he found only tzedakah, distress. So you can see the poet is doing this play on words to show the surprise of the vineyard owner when he comes looking for what he expects, which is good fruit, and he only finds bad. So what is this love song about? Um, this love song is actually a retelling of the story of Israel. God himself is the um, vineyard owner and he did everything he could for that vineyard, right? He cleared the field, he put them on a hillside, he planted the best plants. And the same can be true of Israel as well. God did everything for them. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them a good land in Canaan. He uh, called them to be his people. And yet, in the story, God looks at his people and says, I'm looking for fruit. And yet, there's a failure to produce good fruit. He's looking for justice and righteousness, but instead he's finding bloodshed. Instead he's finding um, cries of distress. Now the reason we started here tonight is because we're gonna be talking about a parable of Jesus together. And Jesus is going to start this parable by quoting this love song from Isaiah 5. So we have to know this song to understand what Jesus is talking about when he tells this parable, okay? All right, any thoughts or questions on Isaiah 5 before we move on? So this was the prophet Isaiah um, who lived before the exile of Judah, which happened in 586. So Isaiah's lifetime was like 100 years before that. Um, 
So this is when Israel is essentially failing to look and sound like the Lord. And so this is right before God judges them through exile. And this uh, poem is a summary of why judgment is coming because God is looking for this fruit and he's not finding any in the country. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna fast forward to the New Testament, which is where a passage takes place. Um, and our parable comes from Matthew chapter 21. So if you wanna follow along, I have it printed out for you. But just to set the stage for you guys, I think it helps for us to be familiar at, as to where this story is coming from in the life of Jesus. Um, the story we're about to read takes place in the last week of Jesus' life before his trial and his execution. Uh, this is often called the Passion Week. Uh, maybe you guys have heard that phrase before, the Passion Week. And this means that within just a few days of telling this parable, Jesus would be taken outside of the city and crucified. So earlier in chapter 21, we read about the beginning of Passion Week, which is where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in his triumphal entry. And Matthew says the entire city is stirred up because of his arrival. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you guys know something about that final week of Jesus' life, you know that he was causing trouble in Jerusalem. One of the first things he does is he goes right into the temple in Jerusalem and he flips over the tables of the moneylenders, those buying and selling in the temple courts. And it says in Matthew that every day he was going to the temple mount to teach. Um, this picture here is a model of Herod's temple this would have been the temple that Jesus was in in his final week in Jerusalem. And this thing is massive. It's believed that it could hold up to a quarter of a million people in these outer courts. And if you guys know, uh, Jesus' death takes place on Passover, which means that uh, when our story takes place, the city is absolutely packed and teeming with people who have pilgrimaged to Jerusalem to be there for the Passover. And Jesus would come to the temple and he would teach, which is actually something that rabbis would do often. They would hang out in the temple courts, especially in these um, overhangs where they were shaded. And so you could go to the temple courts and hang around rabbis to hear them teach. And so this is what Jesus was doing. He was going every day and teaching in the temple. And that brings us to our target passage. And I've included uh, verses 23 through 27 in your handout so that we can get better context of this parable um, to kind of set the stage. So if you want to read with me, we're going to start in Matthew 21 verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? So we have to keep in mind that this is a very public scene. Jesus is teaching in that outer court. There are crowds around him, and he's in the middle of his teaching, when these elders approach him and essentially challenge his authority. 
What they're asking is essentially, who do you think you are? Who gives you the right to act the way you're acting? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? So he turns the question around on them and he says, I'll tell you where I get my authority when you tell me where John the Baptist got his authority. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Okay? So they answered Jesus, we don't know, which is always a great response when Jesus kind of sets you up this way. So Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Okay, this is the context of our parable. So what happens next is Jesus is going to tell a series of three parables that are all connected. The first one he tells is about their rejection of John the Baptist. The second parable that he's going to tell is the one we're going to be studying tonight, which is about their rejection of Jesus And then the third parable that he's going to tell is about their rejection of the servants that Jesus will send in the future. So our parable tonight kind of comes sandwiched in the middle of these three um, parables. So question for you guys. Before we get into the parable, who is Jesus' audience? Based on what we just read, who is Jesus delivering this parable to? What's that? the chief priests and the elders. Do you guys see that? So although there's a crowd of people around Jesus, he's speaking directly to leaders in Israel. And then what prompts Jesus to tell these parables? What event happens that makes Jesus start to tell these stories? Exactly. The leaders come to Jesus, they ask, hey, you're walking in here like you own the place. What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? What authority do you have? And then Jesus starts to tell these stories. All right, so that brings us to our parable tonight. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the parable. And then at your tables, I'm going to have you guys identify what you think some of these key elements of the parable represent. Okay? So we're going to start uh, Matthew 21, verse 20, sorry, 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Does that remind you guys of Isaiah 5, right, which we just read? Guaranteed, everyone in that audience would recognize, oh, he's telling Isaiah 5. He's telling us the song of the vineyard. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. 
Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? So Jesus is now turning to his audience and drawing them into the story. What do you guys think the owner of the vineyard should do to these tenants? And they respond and they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? I love it whenever Jesus looks at the Bible teachers and tells them, haven't you read your Bible? Don't you know what's in the Bible? He does this a lot. Haven't you read in the scriptures? And then he quotes from Psalms 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone who falls, whom, on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. It's a lot there to unpack, yeah? All right, so it's time for you guys to get into the text yourself. Um, and I would love it if you guys would do this in the form of a discussion at your tables. Um, I'm gonna give you a list of things uh, from the parable that I would love you guys to discuss what you think it represents. And you can find this list on the handout. Um, the vineyard owner, the vineyard, the tenants, the owner's servants, the owner's son. So I want you guys to talk at your tables. What do you think each of these elements of the parable represent? And then the other two things I want you guys to talk about in your tables is, um, David introduced this to us in a previous class, but parables often have a moment of an unexpected turn. You're listening to Jesus tell the parable, and you're tracking, it makes sense, and then something sudden and unexpected happens that catches you off guard. So I want you to talk at your tables. In this parable, what is that moment? What is the unexpected turn that you didn't see coming? And then lastly, um, what is the reaction of the audience that Jesus is talking to? So look back at the text and discuss at your tables, how do they react? And there's sort of two reactions actually to this parable. Um, so look for, for both of them. Um, so yeah, discuss this at your table and it might help to have maybe one person be like the scribe who can write these things down so when we share you have notes. Um, any questions on what I'm asking you guys to do? Does that make sense? All right, well then I'll give you some time to discuss. Um, primarily the New Testament. So when Jesus is telling this story, 
how are they meant to understand all of these things? And if that connects with Isaiah, great. But specifically Jesus, what does he mean when he talks about the vineyard and the um, tenants? That's a great question. Any other questions? All right, go for it.
Heather, sounds like a lot of good discussion going on. All right, so let's actually go through this together. I'm going to try not to trip on this. Let's go through this together and kind of share what we came up with, like at our, at our tables. Um, so we'll start with the vineyard owner in the story. Um, this table here, what did you guys come up with for the vineyard owner? What do you guys think? God, solid. We're off to a good start. I agree. <laughs> Easy peasy. Okay. All right. Give you something harder. How about the vineyard? How about this table here? Oh. Well, now I can't disagree. My dad said. <laughs> okay. This is great. Okay. What does the vineyard represent? Uh, after the parable's over, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to others. And so Jesus himself sort of identifies the vineyard as the kingdom of God. Another way of saying this might be the people of God. In Isaiah, what did the vineyard represent? The people of Israel. So you can kind of view all of these things together. The people of God, the kingdom of God, Israel is the vineyard. Great. All right. What about the tenants? How about this table over here? The chief priests and the elders. And actually, we know that it's them because at the very end, what do they say? It says that they knew that Jesus was talking about them. So they actually identify themselves there at the end of the story. Yeah. All right. Um, what about the owner servants? The prophets. Yeah. And what makes you think that it's the prophets? I agree with you. Yeah. And being rejected, yeah. I actually want to pause on that, and I just want to share a few verses with you about the prophets and how they were rejected, because I think that's exactly right. Uh, in Second Chronicles 24, 19, it says, Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. This is very similar to the owner of the vineyard sending servants and they're not being received. Jesus himself is a very famous scene. Jesus himself uh, weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And listen to what he says about Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. So again, this idea of sending prophet after prophet, and yet they have stoned and rejected the prophets. And then lastly, um, in possibly one of the most famous uh, sermons um, in the Bible, definitely in the book of Acts, we have the end of Stephen's speech before he's martyred um, in Acts chapter 7. And uh, 
Stephen, at this moment in this speech, he's actually talking to some of the same guys that Jesus tells this parable to, the leaders of the Jewish people. And he says to them, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And then notice his sarcasm. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Do you guys kind of hear this parable of the tenants in this? Prophet after prophet and you, you rejected them, you rejected them, and then he sent the righteous one and you've murdered him too. So this is Stephen calling the religious leaders out. All right, sorry, had to say that. Prophets, there they are. All right, unexpected turn in the story. Um, how about this table here? What do you guys think? Of this parable that Jesus told, what's the moment, if you were listening, where you're like, didn't see that coming? <laughs> Did I? Oh, that's not that important of a character. No, okay. <laughs> right. You guys thought you were going to get the easy one. You're like, and the owner's son. Who might be the owner's son? We'll give you that one. Jesus. Solid. I would say solid. Yeah. Um, thank you for catching that. Very important, the owner's son. One might say, main character. Uh, okay, unexpected turn in the story. How about you guys? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think you're hearing this story and the expected event is the servants come, the tenants give the fruit, that's what they're hired to do, and instead you have a bloodbath. I mean, they are killing these servants. It's like an, an uprising. So I would say that this is probably the unexpected turn in the story, which culminates in, obviously, the death of the vineyard owner's son. And then lastly, uh, the reaction of the audience. You guys in the back. Yeah. Yeah, I love this because I feel like it's a little bit late, but they eventually realize, oh, wait a minute. That story Jesus just told, that's about us. And it says they want to arrest him. And they probably wanted to arrest him right there, but they're afraid because that temple mount is packed with people and they love Jesus. And they are excited that he's there. He's their favorite teacher, favorite prophet. And so they're like, we cannot touch him in public. Yeah, really good. There's a second uh, reaction from the audience, and that's when Jesus actually asks them the question. He goes, so what do you think should be done with these tenants? 
And what's great about the parables, right, is that it draws you into the story and then gets you to say a little bit more than you, you should. Because what is their answer? Those guys should die for what they've done. They get caught up in the story, they get caught up in the parable, and when Jesus says what should happen to them, they should die and the vineyard should go to someone else. So that's another one of their reactions to this parable. It's kind of like, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I included a lot of that dialogue because you have this story and then you have this almost like follow-up conversation with Jesus and the people. And all of that is actually the reaction. When he quotes Psalms, all of it. But when I say reaction, I'm talking about like an emotional response. Like what's the emotional response um, that Jesus is drawing out from the crowds and from these uh, chief priests and leaders, yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right, we're gonna move into interpretation. So this is when we're gonna be asking some questions about the meaning of this parable. And again, you guys are gonna be discussing at your tables. Um, The first question that I wanna ask is, how does this parable that Jesus tells answer the chief priests and elders question in Matthew 21, 23? What does it reveal about Jesus' identity? So in your tables, look back at Matthew 21, 23, and ask yourselves, how does the parable that Jesus tells answer the question that these leaders have asked him? In what way does this parable answer their question? Does that, does that make sense, what I'm asking? In Matthew 21, 23, the chief priests and the elders approach Jesus and they say, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus tells this parable. So I want you guys to talk at your tables about how this story answers their question. What authority do you have? By whose authority do you do these things, okay? So take a few minutes, talk about it, and then we'll share corporately.
and segue it to the corporate group so we can all learn from one another. Uh, can I get maybe two or three people who want to share something from their table's discussion with everyone else? You bold volunteers. How about, <laughs> you guys all were talking. There must be something. David. <laughs> I think that's a pretty difficult question, but ultimately, I think in light of what you say, uh, how you talk about Because put me in this parable with that song in Isaiah, ultimately they would recognize the words of Isaiah as being positive and blessed. God is the one that makes us mm-hmm. Yeah, so the logic is, if the vineyard owner is God, and I think because of Isaiah, the listeners would go, oh yeah, the owner of the vineyard's the Lord. And the owner of the vineyard has a son, and Jesus is putting himself in the position of the son. He's making a bold claim about his identity as the son of God. Yeah, what else? Any other things come up in your discussion? That's good. To add to that, or maybe a different... Oh. Right. Yeah, Jesus uh, does this constantly where he draws from the Old Testament and then gives them something new. Okay, you know the story of the vineyard. Well, now it's going to change a little bit. Now there's some tenants, there's some farmers, and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? And he takes this story they know to teach them, yeah. Uh, Zach? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's like an ownership. And I want you guys to imagine the picture I showed you. Jesus is standing on the Temple Mount where a few days before he has flipped tables over. And I, I love the phrase, he's acting like he owns the place. And this story is basically him saying, I do own the place. Everything here is my inheritance. You have been given it for a time, but it's mine. I'm the son of the Father. I'm the son of the Lord. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of, um, yeah, they're asking Jesus, who do you think you are? And this parable is a little bit of a, who do you think you are? response. Um, Yeah, this parable uh, makes a pretty bold statement about Jesus' identity as the son of God. And that everything around him belongs to him. And that's his authority. 
So where do I get my authority? This is all mine. This is all my inheritance. I'm the son of God. Um, and it also is interesting because it, it makes us think of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem a little bit different. If he's the son coming to the vineyard, what is he coming to do in Jerusalem? What is he looking for? If he's the son, he's looking for what in the vineyard? He's looking for fruit. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's looking for fruit and he's not finding any. So we can also see this uh, through the lens of this parable. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem like the sun and he's also looking for fruit. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, uh, let's keep going. Um, I want to ask a question and you guys have been hitting on this a little bit. A question about the farmers, okay? Now, we all kind of agreed that one of the big unexpected moments in this story is when these tenants murder not only the servants, but they murder the son. So my question for you guys at your tables is what was the motivation for the tenants to kill the servants and the son of the vineyard owner? And we know that these tenants represent who? The chief priests and the elders. So what is that exposing in, the, in their hearts? Okay, so I'm gonna just repeat it because sometimes I write these questions and I'm like, does that make sense? What is the motivation for the tenants to kill the servants and the son? And then what is that exposing in these chief priests and these elders? Okay, so think about it, talk about it at your tables, and then we'll, we'll come back together.
again, and we're going to bring the discussion back as a whole. Okay, uh, same thing. Can I get maybe two or three people to share either something you thought of or something brilliant that someone said at your table that maybe is too shy to say it? You can say it for them. Um, what do you guys think? What's the motivation of the tenants? What's, what's driving them to, to kill? Oh, yeah. Uh, Audrey, and then... Yeah. Yeah, well said. So just to repeat a couple of things from that, um, a desire for more power. And you see that in the story, right? The tenants, they have a good job, they're working the fields, they have responsibility, and they want more. So I'm going to take more. If we kill the son, what do they say? We can have their inheritance. Now, I have no idea what makes them think if the son is dead, they get the inheritance, but it's the way the parable works. They think, I might get this vineyard, and then I can actually be the one calling the shots. So I get greater power, I get greater authority, and I maybe want to reach out and take uh, for myself what doesn't rightfully belong to me. Um, yeah, uh, another thought here. Nice. Mm -hmm. I like what you said, they didn't like Jesus. And that's no secret when you read the Gospels that the leaders of the Jewish people were not a fan of Jesus and the way he was doing things. And to go back to the parable, if you take the parable for yourself, I mean the parable, if you take the vineyard for yourself, you make the rules. And so what might be happening here is a little bit of a, I don't like the way this vineyard owner, I don't like the way the Lord is running things, I don't like the sun. If I take control, then I get to do what I want with this vineyard. And maybe it's take it in a different direction than what the vineyard owner desired. Yeah, that's really good. Someone else? Publicly? Right, the crowds are kind of stopping them from it. Right. Yeah. So the motivation is because they were mm -hmm. embarrassed mm -hmm. the way they behaved. Yeah, and uh, also with the jealousy, that is something you see come up a lot of times with the leaders and Jesus. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, over here. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a bit extreme. It's a bit extreme, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I agree with all of this. This is really good, yeah. This is the motivation of the tenants, and I think this was something that Jesus is exposing in the chief priests and the leaders. Um, and something I think that is happening in these Jewish leaders is that over time, they began to forget whose vineyard this actually was, right? Because their motivation is they want it for themselves. And so they started to view Israel and the kingdom of God, the people of God, the temple, all of these things they were in charge of and started to think, you know what, this is actually mine. And forgetting that everything they have, everything they've been given is a gift from the Lord to steward, but they actually don't own any of it. And so it's this uh, potentially slow fade into, um, I think you use the word in, do you use the word entitled? Yeah, entitled. I'm entitled to this that I've been given and you can't take it from me. Um, which is of course why they don't like Jesus because he reminds them they're not in charge. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Which is so great because the question that kicks this all off is, who do you think you are? Like, what authority do you have? Yeah, 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 like that show. Surprise, <laughs> this is all mine. Yeah, like Undercover Boss. That's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. If you knew who I was, then you wouldn't be. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah, good. All right, here we go. Um, we got to talk about the psalm. Okay, so after Jesus tells the parable, um, actually, let's just read it together. Jesus finishes the parable, and he asks them, hey, what should be done with these people? And they respond and say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crop at harvest time. Now, Jesus is going to quote from a psalm, Psalm 118, 22 and 23, and he says, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls will be crushed. So my question for you at your tables is, what does the psalm about the cornerstone that Jesus quoted, what does that have to do with the parable of the tenants. What's the connection? Okay, so when Jesus quotes this psalm about the cornerstone, how does that relate to the parable of the tenants? Because Jesus is saying this for a reason, okay? So talk about the psalm, talk about what you think it means, and maybe how those two things are connected, the cornerstone psalm and this parable of the tenants. Make sense?
because I do want to get through one more question before we go to application. Um, I will admit this question was a little bit, I think, more challenging or difficult. Um, so let me just open it up. Uh, anyone want to share some thoughts? There are a lot of, I think, potential answers to this question. Dan, do you want to contribute? All right, this, okay, this table. All right, this table. Yeah, yeah. On this rock, yeah. No, it's good, yeah, because what you guys are doing is you're pulling from what you know from other passages in the New Testament about Jesus being the cornerstone of a new building or a new temple. Um, and so what does that represent? Yeah. Yeah, something new is happening. Yeah. Yeah, because the parable of the tenants ends with the son dying. But then Jesus continues it on and says, okay, but here's what's going to happen next. This vineyard is actually going to be given to someone else that will produce fruit. And then he starts talking about this new building that's being built on a cornerstone. Build this church. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yes. That's good. Okay, so uh, if the son in the parable of the tenants represents Jesus, Sharon, what you're saying is in this little parable of the rejected cornerstone, that cornerstone represents Christ, which is a metaphor for both a foundation and also sort of setting the direction. Yeah, it's a crucial piece of the building that you need. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that.
why that image? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is good. Yeah. This is good. Um, I'm going to go actually to the, to the next slide here and talk a little bit, because those are great questions. Um, Sharon brought up this about the cornerstone. So I think visuals are helpful. Um, this is actually uh, cornerstones that were found, that are found at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they're like 2,000 years old, cornerstones of the Temple Mount. Jesus would have walked by these stones on his way to the temple where he's speaking in our story. Um, and this psalm, it's almost like a mini parable in itself about the cornerstone. And it's painting this picture of builders, or you might better imagine them as like contract workers. Uh, maybe not the owner of the building, but those who are actually doing the building, working, kind of like the tenants in the vineyard. And the, the image is they're out in the rock quarry and they're looking for stones that will work for their building. And you can imagine some of them, they're like, oh, this is perfect. This stone is awesome. I'm going to use this for the building. But they look at another one and they say, I don't like this one. Maybe it's cracked. It's not the right shape. This isn't what we want. And they set it aside. They reject it. And this psalm, Psalm 118, is a prophecy that that stone that the leaders will reject, God says, that's actually the one that I'm going to build my temple upon. And that's actually the one that will be the foundation of all of my work. This one that you rejected, that you said, that's actually not for me. This isn't what we're looking for. That's going to be the one um, that God will use. Uh, so I think what you can do is draw a parallel, one, between the tenants of the vineyard and the builders of the building, Right? along with the owner of the vineyard and the owner of the building, and then the rejected son with the rejected stone. And I, I don't know why, I just think this is so fun, but there's actually a, a, another play on words, a Hebrew play on words. Um, the word uh, for son in Hebrew uh, is the word ben, and the word for stone in Hebrew is the word eben. So very, very similar words. And so Jesus is also doing a little bit of a play on words here where he's connecting these two things and he's saying, yeah, you've rejected the sun, you've rejected the ben, and you've also rejected the eben, the cornerstone. Um, so a little bit of a, a play on words here. Um, to continue kind of answering your question, I have a few verses from the New Testament that actually uh, tie in. It's kind of what your table here was doing. Um, and so I'm going to read you a few of them that will add clarity to this cornerstone image. So what I'm about to read to you comes from um, a speech that Peter gives in the book of Acts, chapter 4. It's my favorite speech in the book of Acts. Peter has just healed a lame man through the power of Jesus and then immediately been arrested by the chief priests and the elders. Same group of guys. It's not been that long. It's the same guys. They arrest him. They put him on trial, and when he's on trial, he gives this speech, and listen to what he says. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter, standing before the same group of leaders, is going to repeat this psalm about the cornerstone, and he's going to say, Jesus was the cornerstone. You rejected him, and now God is building his church using Jesus as a cornerstone, and you guys are off here doing something else. You're actually not building God's building here, this temple. So Peter's going to use this imagery. Um, Also, there's so many uh, ties into this building metaphor. Um, Actually, I'm going to read one at the end. I don't have it right now. Follow-up. Does that make sense? A little bit more of what he's doing with this image of the builders and the stone. All right, then we have to ask uh, the last question, uh, which is what does the parable mean? So uh, Jesus says this really strong statement in verse 43. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. What does that mean? How is that fulfilled? right? What does that actually look like? Because Jesus says, this is what's about to happen, okay? So talk amongst yourselves. Verse 43, what does it mean that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people that will produce fruit, okay? I'll give you just a couple minutes just because we are, yeah, was not very long. Um, what do you guys think? Uh, what does this actually mean when Jesus says this? 
Any guesses? His kingdom will be offered to everyone. Yeah, there's going to be a shift, right? Okay, yeah, from, from not just the Jews, but also including others. So you think that might be what he means when he says the kingdom will be given to others, that it also will include the Gentiles as well. Okay. Other thoughts or additions? Right, yeah. <laughs> and he's taking away from who? Who's the you in this? Yeah, these chief priests and these elders. I tell the tenants, yeah, the tenants and the builders. I tell you, kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to others who will produce fruit. Yeah. I'm going to get the fruit either way, but it's... Uh-huh. Yeah, like, I wanted you to participate in this, but you're not participating. We're still going to get fruit out of this vineyard, but it's actually going to be through others besides you. And maybe this position you thought was so permanent, uh, there's actually something bigger going on. That's good. Pruning. Yeah. Okay, so, and this is interpretive, so this is just kind of my opinion, Uh, but if we were to look at this statement, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing fruits. Who does Jesus, if you would think of a group of people, who does Jesus in a way kind of hand this responsibility over to? The disciples. Um, And so I think you can look at this shift starting with God essentially handing, you kind of mentioned the church will be built off people like Peter, the foundation of the church. Um, As this new leadership, it's gonna start with the apostles, but it's gonna grow to people like Paul and then on throughout church history. And so I think that transition, in my opinion, is from the traditional Jewish leaders to his own disciples. And um, I think we can see this in most, one of the most famous passages, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me which shouldn't surprise us because we just read the parable of the tenants. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, to produce fruit, to obey my commands. Go and teach people to produce fruit. And so I think what we see happen at the end of the Gospels and into Acts is this actually comes to pass. Um, God is building his kingdom, his temple, and he's going to do it uh, not necessarily through the religious elite in Israel, but actually through these 12 disciples and then on, 
through others as well. Um, and it's going to be much bigger than they ever imagined, right? And uh, Uncle Les mentioned that. The nations are going to actually be drawn in to this kingdom, and it's going to grow. Um, I'm going to share one more verse before we do a little bit of application together. This is from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And I want you guys to hear this, and hopefully this language will be familiar to you because of what we just read. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. There's that metaphor. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And I believe he's talking about preaching the gospel of Jesus. I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each person take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, that image of Christ as the cornerstone we see in Paul's writing as well. All right, so we need to talk about how this passage actually impacts us today because unless I am mistaken, no one in this room is a chief priest or elder um, in Israel. And so what does this parable have to teach us today? And I've spent uh, some time this week thinking about this parable and I would submit to you a few things that I have felt uh, have impacted me. Um, and the first is that this parable makes a very strong statement about the identity of Jesus, about who he is. Um, we learn from this parable that Jesus places himself in the role of God's son and that he carries the full authority of his father in heaven. And that's how he must be viewed. Second, uh, this is something that really struck me with this parable is one of the main purposes of the kingdom of God, the people of God, is to produce fruit. That's the common thread through Isaiah 5 and this story is God has this vineyard and he's looking for fruit, justice, and righteousness. And I believe today he is still looking at his people, he's looking at us and he's saying, I want to see fruit, I want to see justice, I want to see righteousness. Um, and so a question for us today is how are we producing fruit with what we've been given? And then lastly, uh, I think that the chief priests and the elders can serve as a warning to us. We do not want to be like them in that we forget that everything we've been given is from the Lord. It's not actually ours. We have been invited to work with Jesus, and it's a privilege to be a part of what God's doing in the world, but none of this actually belongs to us. Um, and so I think there's a warning here to never forget that God is ultimately the owner, and all that we have, our life, our relationships, and our resources are his. Um, as we close, I do want to close in a little bit of discussion. These are some things that stood out to me, but I know that the Holy Spirit is working in each one of you, and I know that you are also coming in with your own situation. And so I do want to take some time at your tables, just a couple of minutes, to maybe share with one another um, a way that you feel like this story has spoken to you, in a way that perhaps it has actually impacted the way you see the Lord 
and your, um, what God's asking you to do. Um, it could be one of these three things or it could be something totally different. So take a minute or two and do that and then I will close us in prayer. Would anyone like to maybe share with the, the group something that was standing out to them that maybe was more applicational that they were taking from the story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like works? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so your question is, okay, we're learning that God is expecting good fruit, uh, but how do you keep from making it all about the works that I have to do? Um, I would say there's a few verses in the New Testament about um, fruit is what will naturally happen when you are in Christ. And Jesus actually uses this metaphor at the end of John when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me and you'll produce this fruit. And it should be effortless if we're in him. So instead of focusing on, I got to do a lot of stuff for God, if we're in Christ and connected to him, it's, it's almost communicated like it's inevitable. Fruit will come. You can't even help it. The Holy Spirit will produce fruit in your life if you're connected to him. Um, and Jesus says the opposite. If you're not connected to me, you will not bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so I think there's this uh, maybe misunderstanding that we have to muster up this work. And that really isn't it at all. Um, in fact, Jesus just invites us to be connected to him, filled with the Holy Spirit, and what will naturally flow out of your life is fruit. Um, that's a really good point, yeah. It's a good like counterpoint to this um, desire the Lord has to see fruit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Picked for the team. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the fishermen, right? That first get this call. It's like Peter and James and John picked for the team. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. It's a privilege. It's a gift. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been uh, really fun hearing your thoughts. And this was a bit of a... I don't want to say a difficult parable, but there's just a lot in here. And we, we were able to work our way through it. Um, let me just close us in prayer and then uh, we'll be done for the evening. Uh, Lord, we love you so much. And we are so thankful for the privilege to be a part of your kingdom, to be a part of these beautiful things you're doing in the world. And I pray that as we leave this building tonight, that we really would be um, connected to the vine and producing fruit in our life. Um, and again, that we would look at that as a privilege and a joy. Um, yeah, God, I thank you so much for this group of people and just the privilege it is to study together with them. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good job, Abby.